Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we have a very important conversation with our guest, Liz Dong. Well, I am very excited to have Liz on the show because if you've been listening to The New Activist for any period of time, you know that we've been talking about immigration from a lot of different angles. In 2017, we spoke with Jenny Yang from World Relief, who kind of helped us understand some of the public policy issues surrounding the, the immigration conversation. In 2018, we spoke with Sarah Quesada, who really walked through the very personal story of her her family and how they have intersected with this entire immigration conversation. And then recently in February, David Gunger from the band Brilliance came on and shared through his artist's lens the, the hope and the plight of DACA Dreamers. So we've been talking about this together on the show, but there have been a few pieces for me that I have yet to understand, which is why I am so glad that Liz is with us. Liz does a lot of work and advises with different organizations, uh, Voices of Christian Dreamers, Immigration Reform Coalition, as well as the Evangelical Immigration Table. She will talk about some of those during the interview. But in all of these, she brings in these two really interesting streams of knowledge. The first is the fact that she herself is an immigrant from China. She'll share that whole story about her family coming to America and what that was like and the personal toll that it took. But at the same time, Liz is also really compelled by her faith. She is a Christian. And so we will talk in this interview about what it means to be a person of faith who is wrestling with and considering the complex issues of immigration. I am grateful for this conversation with Liz, not only because she is just a tremendously smart and kind person, but also because she was gracious enough to just let me ask some very fundamental and basic questions that I didn't understand. And my guess and my hunch is that maybe you have the same questions as well. So without further ado, here is our guest, Liz Dong. I hate asking on the nose questions, but I want to make sure that sort of to set a table for understanding you and the work that you do and your story. I wondered if you could just tell me a bit about the evangelical immigration table and what they do and what your work is with them. So the evangelical immigration table um, is a broad coalition of uh, Christian organizations and leaders advocating for immigration reform and consistent with a set of principles that uh, we put out. So it's six broad principles that talk about respecting God-given dignity of every individual, of keeping families together, respecting the rule of law um, and such. And the EIT is composed of several uh, national Christian organizations, as I mentioned, that includes the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, um, includes National Association of Evangelicals, World Vision, World Relief, and, and several other uh, entities. And my role with the EIT has been uh, helping, just coming alongside churches, um, church leaders on a, on a grassroots level, on a local level, helping them understand why we as Christians, um, ministries should care about immigration, should care about immigrants, 
And then what are steps that we can, you know, take to engage in these issues consistent with these biblical principles? On the EIT website, you know, there's a resource page and I was looking through the resources just because I would wanted to know more and wanted to walk through some of these resources. And there was a line that I think was just like maybe just a copy editor wrote it, but it was such an interesting line. And it said, uh, like, here you can dive into the complex topic of immigration from a Christian perspective. And that word complex kind of struck me because like, I, I think I'm showing my bias, but what is complex about it from a Christian perspective? When you when you look through the principles, it just seems like, yes, of course, everybody would agree with that. Every That's just the basic Christian belief that that's how we should feel about the topic of immigration. But clearly, it's complex. So can you, can you explain to me why and wh- what that means? Yeah. And the principles, uh, as mentioned, and you can check out on our um, website, the principles are written with the intention of being broad. Right? Yeah. Because we as um, you know, a Christian sort of a coalition, it's not our responsibility to write policies, and we're not certainly in the position to do so, um, but it is our call to sort of advise um, governing leaders, authorities to enact laws that reflect justice, um, and especially coming from a Christian perspective, enact laws that reflect the heart of God. Um, so that was kind of, that's the rationale behind sort of the more generality, the vagueness behind the the, uh, the principles. And we also understand that, um, you know, you mentioned the kind of the term complex, what's complex about addressing immigration. I think on a, uh, and I think this is coming from me having worked in this space and having really um, even taken my own journey, right, in learning about the issue and, and figuring out my theology and how I'm to respond as a Christian. So I've, I've arrived at a point where I look at the Christian response to welcoming the, the stranger on an individual, on a church level. I think that's actually really pretty basic in the sense that, you know, Jesus was pretty clear in, in how we're to, uh, to respond to the, to the immigrant, to the sojourner among us. But when it comes to policy, when it comes to an acting immigration laws, right, for a country like the United States, it gets a little bit more complex. Um, it Things aren't as black and white. Can you dive into that a little bit more? What's not black and white? Sure. Um, just in the sense of, right, the, while the, the Bible outlines um, instructions, biblical commands on how we as, you know, Christians are to respond and welcoming the stranger, where to, um, where to, um, to treat right the stranger in our midst as the citizen um, that our yeah. our love for the neighbor doesn't have really a qualifier, uh, but it doesn't really lay out a specific set of immigration policies. Right, it doesn't tell us well how many visas should the government issue uh, on a yearly right. basis. So, and and how many um, how many refugees or how many um, asylees, uh, be it that we we want to welcome and to help um, all we. We might not be able to. So, so these are some of the some of the issues and tensions that we wrestle with. Yeah. So, from from maybe it's your perspective, or maybe it's EIT's perspective, or maybe both. Like, should there be a, a limit on the number of of visas? I like. I just I'm I'm asking these questions because I never know. Because I'm like, it's I'm very all or none sometimes in my thinking. Yeah. So I'm like, doors wide open or doors completely shut. It. But is there an in between? And I. I I should have just stuck with the question, which was, so where, what do you think the line is, if there is one? Right, you bring up a really good point, because I think oftentimes we talk about immigration, we sort of talk about it in extremes, right? Either we right. close our borders, shut down our borders, or 
we just have open borders. Anyone, everyone can come in. And I don't think neither side um, or neither approach is necessarily helpful or even feasible for that matter. So um, when you when you ask, you know, what, what is the number of visas? Uh, I don't I don't know if there's a magical number. And right. I think it depends, right, based on um, both U.S. economic um policy needs. Um, and that's a reality because this is a country that has its governing body, has its governing laws. But then there are also um, humanitarian reasons um, that we should take into consideration as we right now looking at the worst you know, global refugee crisis, etc. Um, so I think, I think this is where um, there's a lot of nuance um, that needs to be considered as as you know, legislators come together and, and, and talk about these issues, and, and we recognize it's a, it's a difficult job. I feel like when we're talking about, a lot of times we're talking about immigration, it's the voices on the periphery that are the loudest. And in reality, a lot of us live in sort of the middle of that bell curve where we're just trying to figure out how to reconcile the complex issues that you just outlined with with our faith that also what you talked about, which is, you know, clearly loving our neighbor, but there's not always like, and here's the chapter on visas. Like, so there's a lot that, <laughs> that right, that we have to figure out. And so- If I'm, only there were a chapter on visas. <laughs> I know, I know, I know that's right. Oh so, God, you could have made it so much easier. <laughs> it would have no. been a lot easier for all of us, wouldn't it? And certainly for your work. So in the work that you're doing, really leading these conversations and trying to help people understand sort of the Venn diagram of what's right, I, I don't, maybe that's not the right word, but the, the middle of the Venn diagram of just like what, how, how faith and policy can intersect with this. How are you feeling like people are generally responding to the work and kind of what's the temperature of the thinking Christian these days as it pertains to this conversation? Mm, I kind of, in, in my work, I kind of sense these almost these two parallel narratives taking place. There's the, sort of the national um, narrative and largely driven by media um, that kind of portray Christians, in particular evangelical Christians, in a in a certain light, um, but as maybe um, you know, not as welcoming, um, um, more resistant to to forms of immigration, or just more readily to say that we should uh, reduce refugee resettlement or um, or even our uh, visa system. But actually, in my in my work engaging faith leaders, churches on a local level, I see just a lot of really wonderful things happening in the ways that churches are engaging this issue. Churches are putting together um, teams to welcome refugees and, and to help settle refugees in their communities or conducting English classes or helping figure out ways in which they can set up low-cost, affordable, um, legal uh, services within their church mm-hmm. uh, with proper training, yeah. of course. Um, yes. So, I mean, I think I think Christians overall are definitely wrestling with this. Um, and I think what's it's been really unhelpful, maybe some of the rhetoric has really pitted sort of a compassionate response, right? When the Bible tells us to welcome the, the stranger with the sense of, oh, well, if we're compassionate, then we can't uphold security. Uh, oh. We can't ensure public safety, right? When we welcome refugees or when we welcome immigrants. And, and, and those do not have to be really pitted against each other. We can be both compassionate and secure. Um, and you can see even with the U.S. Refug- Refugee Settlement Program, it has had a, I mean, a long track record of um, doing proper vetting. Um, not to mention that, not to say that it's a perfect program. It cannot be improved, um, but we do have a really, really good track record of welcoming refugees 
And um, actually, out of the three million refugees, that roughly three million refugees that the U.S. resettled um, since the early onset of the refugee program in the early 80s, um, zero. Uh, there has been no terrorist attack which has taken a U.S. Uh, citizen's life. Right? There's been zero American life lost in a refugee resettle wow. that then has turned into a terrorist. Wow, that is very different from the rhetoric that we hear. Right. Yeah. Right. I think which yeah. you know really points to the need for good information. Right. Just truth. Not spin either way, just what is an accurate fact. Exactly. And I, I f- feel like on the show a lot we've kind of heard a lot about the the from the voices of people who are immigrants and so much like in our work with IJM or really with anybody's work, the power of a story of a person really humanizes it because we can think of it all in terms of theology and policy. But to really get inside of it, there's, I think, an, a need to know a, a human, a, a, a face in their actual story. Absolutely. Immigration yeah. ultimately is a human issue, right? Um, and because we as Christians, we address it from a biblical worldview. We understand that um, as we talk about people made in the image of God, um, Imago Dei, um, then we have to be talking about the people and talking to the people um, who are being affected uh, by these systems and structures. I would be remiss if I didn't ask. I've heard you share part of your story before. I'm curious if you would share a bit of your background. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I I often say that um, in a lot of what really compels me to do this work and is that I myself, as you've alluded to, um, I am an immigrant and I am a product of the church welcoming the stranger. And that's what um, really makes me passionate about this. Um, But uh, my, so I came from uh, China. I was born in China in the beautiful and historic city of Nanjing, China. And uh, my mom actually came to the U.S. first. Um, and she came to uh, on a student visa to study, uh, to pursue her graduate studies. And, you know, we come from a, an atheist family background, uh, but really by God's grace, when my mom came to the States, um, God just placed Christians in her into her life. And these individuals just welcomed mom and, um, you know, brought, in her, brought her into their respective families and really just practiced biblical hospitality. Right. Hospitality is in the New Testament Greek philozania, which mm. means the, the love of strangers. Mom was a stranger um, and, and actually at the time kind of a little bit hesitant and, um, you know, to kind of give into religion and a little bit um, hostile towards, towards religion in, in general. Um, but that did not keep them from just loving mom and welcoming her. And, um, you know, after mom graduated um, from, from schooling and ended up being able to then switched to her work visa um, and they made sure to, to connect her when she moved to Chicago, they made sure to connect her to, to her, um, to their Christian friends and families in the area so that she would have some sort of a support system. I mentioned all of this uh, because um, I came on a dependent visa uh, when my mom was able to obtain her work visa. Oh. So I came to the U.S. under my mom's work visa as a dependent, um, legally entered into the country um, at the age of 10. And uh, d- didn't speak English at the time, but was you know excited to um, start life here. And um, but little did we know that even just within a short period of time, uh, that our 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 life, our immigration status, would take a drastic turn. 
And it so happened that, um, just long story short, due to the errors of um, our immigration attorney, and then also compounded by factors that uh, were outside of our control, I ended up losing my status as a 12-year-old, even though we didn't do anything to break U.S. immigration laws. Wow. Okay, can we pause at that point in the story for one second? I'm sorry to interrupt, but absolutely. I, there's a couple. There's a couple things that hit me first. Your mom goes to your mom leaves to go to school. How long is she in school for? She did um, two years of intensive language studies. So she didn't really know English when she came. Yeah. Um, yeah. So intensive ESL, English as second language yeah. uh, studies, and then uh, completed her master's degree. Um, I think which took another two years or so. So she was in school about four to five years. Yeah. So your mom left when you were six and then you finally saw her again when you were 10. Did you ever see her in between? I did not. And you um, didn't have, I mean, there's not like Skype at the time. Right? No, there's right? not. And uh, yeah. international calls cost a lot of money to, to make. Yeah. I guess I'm just trying to paint the picture a little bit because in so many stories, that's a that's the beginning of a story, you know, my, my dad or my mom or whatever left for job and opportunity and they just keep going. But that's a really significant piece of the story is that your mom left and went to America and you're home. I mean, she goes in search of this education and like, what does that do to your family to have her working extremely hard, but not mm -hmm. there for those four years, five years? Yeah. And I will say that um, our story is not so atypical of a lot of immigrant stories, like you mentioned, right. and especially um, I, I knew of other, um, you know, Chinese immigrants that had similar sort of similar setup uh, stories where, um, the, you know, the parents would go study or work and then the children uh, before they can financially support them or before even legally at the time, um, you know, I, I couldn't come because my mom wasn't earning income. Um, she wasn't financially viable um, to support me. So legally, even on a visa um, system, I couldn't, I couldn't come. So I stayed with my grandparents uh, who raised me for those um, five years. And I grew really close to my grandparents. And it was, I, I, you know, it, I think I was still young at the, at the time. It was really hard for my mom um, to yeah, be, I would imagine. she didn't have anyone here, didn't have family, um, really just yeah. kind of started life right from, from scratch um, here in America, um, but just worked so hard uh, to, to, learn the language um, and then to you know, master her studies. Yeah. But I mean, that I, I can't tell you exactly how that um, shaped me as I was growing up and in my yeah. age five to 10, but it certainly made an imprint in my life. Um, and I think it certainly also helped me realize not to take family or you know, family presence or proximity for granted or the idea right. of education, right? Pursuing education um, further in studies. I mean, it takes tremendous fortitude and bravery on your mom's part. I think it just says a, a lot about who she must be to, to do that because, I mean, that's a that's a big deal. Yeah, she is an incredible woman. Yeah. Okay, so we, we pick up in the story. So you finally, you, you get to the U.S., you reunite with your mom at 10, and by 12, there is a, something has gone wrong, and you're, visas denied. So what happens then? Yeah. And, um, it's, you know, it's just amazing to even think back now. I was the same kid, right. Living, doing life in the same way. And just really within a matter of a few months, um, I, I lost my status. And I think right. my mom really tried to, to protect me and to, 
you know, not weigh me down with the, the knowledge of understanding what just happened, not to even, you know, not that I, I don't think I would have fully comprehended what that meant as a 12 year old. So I actually didn't come out, come to find out about my status, um, until I was a little bit older, um, closer to entering to high school. Hmm. And, um, and, you know, even during, in the meantime, mom had, um, approached our legislators, um, our senators and representative approached other immigration attorneys, just trying to do everything she can to figure out a way to reinstate uh, our, our status. Um, you know, she was just determined we didn't do anything wrong. There's gotta be a way for us to, to make this the right again. And we had no recourse at the time. And so I came to find out, um, that without legal status, um, I couldn't drive. I couldn't work. And at the time I couldn't attend university regardless of how I did in high school. Yeah. There are some pretty severe practical implications for this. How do you, what do you end up doing? It was just, I mean, the discovery just turned my world upside down. And to me at that time, just such foreign information. Like I I didn't even have time to prepare myself. And, and I, I, I didn't really understand how to share this with other people. Should I share it? How would people respond? And so I just kind of largely kept it to myself. And, and began to just almost just could wrestle and, and I felt like living in my own dark little world, secret little world, um, and just felt there's shame if I share, there's stigma. Um, really? But I, I, I think I just really tried to bury myself in my schoolwork, even though I knew that it wasn't really taking me everywhere, but it was sort of my um, go-to to, to, to not have to think about everything that was happening. Um, but I did eventually muster up enough courage uh, to share this information with my youth pastor. Oh. And, uh, you know, my youth pastor, I, I, I went with trepidation and didn't really know how to how he would respond. But uh, he was so gracious and just um, began to to learn about this issue um, and and just began to to become really my advocate, uh, my champion on, on this issue, both within the church, um, you know, with my permission and just uh, when I felt comfortable um, allowing me to share this with um, others in the youth group and um, and advocate on my behalf within the church and then also out in the public sphere. And he would um, meet, um, and that's actually, he connected first uh, with uh, staff of World Relief and uh, the Evangelical Immigration Table. Uh, to to begin advocating on my behalf, um, and that was just tremendously empowering. Where does that shame come from? Like, what is what was the fear that if you told your buddy or somebody knew, what would um what would happen to you, or what would happen within the you know high school social scene? Or well, growing up in you know growing up in the in the suburbs of Chicago, I didn't know another person who was in the same situation as me. I'm sure, I'm sure there are, um, as you mentioned, but it was just something when you lose status. And I think especially in the, you know, in the Asian American culture, um, where keeping face is, is very important. Um, you don't really talk about these things and certainly losing status and becoming right, quote unquote, illegal. That is not an honorable thing. Um, so you don't really talk about it. Yeah. And I think I was just so overtaken by the discovery. I, I also just didn't didn't really know how to explain it. And true, we didn't do anything wrong, but but um, 
it, it was just such a, a, a complex issue um, that you know people just assume that well you must have for for this to have happened to you. Um, so you've clearly got this deeply personal story, and you've got the work that you do within the thought leadership sphere, and we're sitting here and, you know, as, as a group of people who are pretty rooted in our faith, trying to understand like the Christian response, how to love well, how to love our neighbor well, how to also, you know, understand policy and the complexity of all of it. I'm curious what some of the common misunderstandings or misconceptions are that you encounter when educating uh, people who are Christian. And this can be either about the the population or about the policy? Sure. I think one of one of the common misconceptions, um, especially as, as Christians begin to think through this issue and, and, and think about immigrant stories, is that immigrants almost, the reason that they're undocumented or that they don't have legal status is because they chose to do that. Um, that was their choice and that they could have waited in line or they could have done certain things to make themselves legal. Mm-hmm. And um, so in my story, and I'm not unique, um, there are others who um, do two factors that they were outside their control have lost their status. But we're also looking at a population of, of immigrants who come to the United States without paperwork. Um, they're, they're working, they're contributing. Many, the majority, 75%, of undocumented immigrants are paying taxes, um, but mm. they would not have had a way to legally come here, regardless of how much fee they pay or how how long um, of a line that they wait in. They just don't have uh, the means to come into the United States um, because we have certain caps on, on uh, employment visas and very limited number that are uh, provided for quote unquote non highly skilled workers. Um, they'll do heartbreaking, difficult, and important jobs, right? Whether it's working in agriculture or hospitality, um, et cetera. Um, But that is far fewer, the visa that are allotted on an annual basis, which is roughly 5,000 currently, that's far fewer than what the U.S. economy, um, a lot of different labor um, industries will tell you, the dairy industry, um, farming industry tell you are necessary are uh, sufficient um, for them to have a um, sustainable workforce. So they're coming, they're contributing, but they wouldn't have been able uh, to get a visa because there just aren't visas for, for them. And in um, certain countries, um, if you're the relative, immediate relative of a U.S. citizen or a U.S. Um, permanent resident, your wait time to come to the United States uh, can be more than 20 years, two decades. Actually, if you're the, the sibling of a U.S. Uh, citizen, your wait time, they're still processing cases from the 1980s. Wow. So there's not means, right, ways for them to come here legally. It's It'll take a full generation, if that, to, it, to even get your case through. Exactly. And you know, oftentimes, too, when you're talking about um, asylees, or what we're seeing um, migrants coming at the border, to be designated a, a refugee, um, you have to fit very specific criteria, right? If you're fleeing persecution or fear persecution on account of your race, religion, political opinion, nationality, or membership of social group. But if you're fleeing natural disaster, abject poverty, extreme violence, right? What we 
would um, reasonably conclude to be pretty desperate situations, yeah. you don't qualify for refugee status. So wow. it just, it kind of hopefully paints a picture of how difficult it is to actually come, right? When you have legitimate reasons of leaving your countries of origin. And for undocumented immigrants who are in the United States, a lot of times you hear people talk about how, well, they just need to get back in line. Um, but once you've incurred um, unlawful presence in the United States, once you've lost legal status, oftentimes you actually have to leave the country and that triggers a three or 10 year ban, um, could be much longer and there's no re guarantee of re-entry. Wow. And oftentimes these individuals have family members, immediate family members that are in the United States, you know, maybe children who've grown up here or who are born here and who are citizens. And that means they would potentially have to leave right, their children or their spouse, um, and to be able to possibly, with no guarantee, of readjusting their status. Wow. I'm shocked by the systemic failure of all of it. Like, I feel like it just seems completely hopeless. Does it feel that way to you? How does somebody who wants to leave their country and come to America, how do they, is it even possible for them to do it in a way that's legal? There are some paths. Uh, to yeah. come into the United States legally. And, and what we're advocating is that, you know, people should be able to, and people should come here legally. Um, yeah. We should be reducing illegal entry. Um, and so that really gets back to the idea of we need a functional immigration system, right, that um, can meet U.S. labor um, and economic needs. Right, that doesn't send U.S. educated foreign students when they obtain their college master degrees or you know higher advanced degrees home simply because there's we've run out of work visas, um, and and now they are at a foreign in a foreign country and even working for companies that are in direct competition to U.S. companies, or even just you know policies that separate families um, that um, tear spouses or uh, parents children apart. So, so we need reforms to a, to a system to allow it to, um, for people to come, to families to be kept together, for U.S. to continue to honor its legacy of, of welcoming the persecuted, uh, but also that restores the rule of law so that the, the immigration law is not just arbitrarily, sub subjectively enforced, um, but that people can really come here legally rather than yeah. choosing illegal and sometimes very dangerous um, ways to, to come to the United States. The, the, the two statements that I hear most often are in, in opposition to granting more visas, opening the borders more fully. One is the security issue, and we've talked about um, the reality of that. But the second is what you touched on with the labor issue. And so some would say that the and, and I'm, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here, but more actually, I just don't fully understand all of this. So I, I appreciate you giving me sort of a, you know, 101 education. But some would say that, like, we don't want to supply that labor force from people that are not American, because then the labor force will just, you know, if we don't do that, then the labor force, like the dairy industry will hire more Americans. Um, and that seems like a thing that people care about. Can can you help me understand why that would not be true or why that's just if even if it is true, it's just not right? Yeah. Yeah. So the, I think the premise that kind of goes into that argument is this idea or this assumption that the economy or the job market is a fixed pie. Yeah. 
right? So that if an immigrant takes a slice of the pie, then that's a slice uh, less for an American citizen. Um, right. But if you talk with economists, um, the economy is actually a lot more dynamic than that. Um, and with a growing economy, uh, there needs to be growing population. So even just looking at, from an economic perspective, um, immigrant help um, boost population growth where in a lot of places in America, um, in uh, rural Midwest, some of the places that I work in um, and engage uh, uh, communities with on, on this issue, they're looking at negative declining populations. And that is, that is not sustainable for uh, for a growing or even um, a stable economy. But in terms of, of the job markets, immigrants tend to um, really complement the, the U.S. labor force in the sense that they take jobs that require advanced degrees um, right. in engineering and the STEM fields um, that there's a shortage of. Um, and hopefully, as we're encouraging more Americans um, to, to pursue those fields, but there is a shortage of workers coming out of the STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics fields. Um, and then you also have a shortage, as mentioned, um, in, in, the, um, in the agricultural, um, dairy, and a lot of hard labor um, sort of fields where your typical American actually doesn't want to take on those jobs. Um, you know, in, in conversations with farmers, dairy farmers, and you know, it's very understandable that they don't necessarily want their children to do the same jobs that they have done their lives. They, they want their children to go on and pursue other vocations, other careers. Um, so oftentimes they, they lack workers in the United States to do those backbreaking labor-intensive jobs that feed, um, feed the economy upstream, right? That create jobs upstream. Um, you know, you, you know, arguably, um, you could say that you and I could live without our, our smartphones or iPhones for, for a number yeah. of days, but it's very hard to go through even just a few days or a week long without fresh groceries in our stores, mm. right? Fresh fruits or vegetables, or even right. without having our um, business um, bathrooms cleaned. So, yeah. I mean, th and those are jobs that typically uh, a lot of immigrants are taking up or performing. So very critical jobs that again, make, um, other jobs upstream possible. It's fascinating. I I want to end our time with um, just a practical, some practical stuff. I, when we hear this and we engage in this conversation, we've actually done a number of episodes kind of covering different angles of this conversation. And I appreciate uh, you being on the show today because it's, I, I felt you've answered some of the really basic questions that I think a lot of people, me included, were kind of afraid to ask, like, how does this actually affect us? And why is this an issue? And I just appreciate you just diving in and being so thoughtful. But one of the big questions that I have is truly like, how do you engage in being part of a solution in such a massive systemic like issue as immigration reform? How, how would a normal person be a part of helping with this? Mm. Yeah. And an issue like immigration can feel overwhelming, right? In terms of addressing, um, you know, the, the various aspects of immigration, when we talk about 
refugee um, crisis that's unfolding around the world, uh, where we're talking about how to address the 11 million or so undocumented immigrants in the United States. And, and now we're looking at increasingly migrants fleeing violence, fleeing poverty and arriving or persecution mm -hmm. arriving at our borders. And it just can seem um, almost paralyzing, right? Where do I start? Um, how do I respond? But I think, um, as we talked about before, immigration ultimately is a human issue and it's ultimately about people. I think oftentimes it's just starting with the people that God has placed in your lives, in your communities. And sometimes that may take a little bit of seeking out um, because for reasons that um, you know, you, your audience can understand, um, you know, immigrants may be, may be afraid, um, or undocumented immigrants like myself um, may be afraid or hesitant to, to share their status or, or share their, their situation. But um, it's bringing the issue back to uh, the person and um, focusing, starting with that. And what can I do to help right, this, this individual? And, and what are some uh, factors that, um, that are contributing um, to where this, uh, this person is, is um, the, the challenges that this person is facing? And I think, especially for Christians, we have to root our response in the Bible, in scripture, um, because political, you know, political platforms, social movements, cultural movements are, are constantly shifting. Um, and, but the Bible doesn't, the word of God remains the same. And I think once we have um, that as sort of the, um, the foundation for how we address this, I think it becomes, um, much more um, possible because we know that ultimately, right, God is in control. Um, and so some ways in which, you know, you can kind of respond to immigration specifically, I mentioned starting with scripture, um, understanding what um, the Bible has to say about God's heart for immigrants. And there are some wonderful resources that the Evangelical Immigration Table has put out. Um, I encourage your listeners to to check out um, evangelicalimmigrationtable.com slash thinking biblically. Yeah. Um, we just actually launched a free ebook um, entitled Thinking Biblically About Immigration. Yeah. Um, that kind of really provides a, a solid foundation, a biblical worldview on this issue. Um, and then it's, it's learning about this issue. We talked about the importance of equipping ourselves with facts, with truth. Um, in engaging in this debate, um, both within our own social circles and, and also out in the public sphere, mm -hmm. being educated and helping to kind of bring this information right to, to your communities. Um, yeah. And then, um, you know, as you begin to learn about the, the plight of immigrants and refugees in this country around the world, and then it's considering how do you begin to um, help change some of the structural, uh, some of the system systemic challenges, right, that um, place these people in these situations, kind of the root causes. Um, so in the United States, in this great democracy that we live in, um, that may mean um, engaging within the political system. And there are certainly ways to be political without becoming partisan. Um, and I think even scripture has a lot of examples of biblical characters right, who engage in the, in the systems of their day, in the political systems of their day. Think about Esther, think about Nehemiah, Moses, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just uh, reaching out to your members of Congress, um, sharing uh, why this issue is important to you, 
and why a solution is important and sharing those stories um, that you hear that you know about immigrants and, and refugees in your communities. And then also, as you do that, you know, bring people um, along the way and really empowering the immigrants and refugees that you know to speak up and, and, and to share their stories. Yeah. And we will link to um, Evangelical Immigration Table as well as Voices of Christian Dreamers. Both are just really practical, helpful resources. And um, you're doing a great job with both of those. I was It was really helpful for me as I was trying to wrap my head around all of this. So good job. Um, yeah, the, the last question is a question that we ask everyone. And I think that your perspective will be um, unique. And, and the question is very simply, how would you define activist? As a Christian, I see activism as an extension of my faith. And I am someone who does not come from a public policy background. I have, other than government in high school, I've never taken another political science class. Um, I'm, I'm not actually very politically inclined, um, but I, I see advocacy, I see activism um, as a way to really translate and apply my faith in very practical ways. Um, and certainly important um, to love and serve people on, a, on an interpersonal basis. And I have been really the blessed recipient of that hospitality uh, of Christians, of churches, of people. Um, but again, we come up against these systemic issues. Um, we need to also address right, the, the structures. So that's where I see uh, activism really as an extension of, of you know, the prayers I lift up or even the, the discipleship that I'm called to um, love uh, the neighbor, to be the neighbor, and to welcome the stranger. Well, that was Liz Dong, and I am so grateful not only for how she traversed the interview questions today, but moreover, just how she is thinking about faith and politics and the humanity of the entire immigration conversation. I am grateful also that she was willing to share her story with us. As she said in the interview, there is so much of this that relies on knowing a person and understanding a story. And so today, maybe knowing more about her story and how we can help will be helpful to you. It certainly was to me. If you want to keep up with Liz, as she said in the interview, the best website is Evangelical Immigration Table. That's all mushed together into one word, EvangelicalImmigrationTable.com. And her Twitter is just her name spelled backwards. G-N-O-D-Z-I-L. So I will leave all of the links to that in our show notes. Many of you know this, and if you don't, this will be an announcement for you, but we have both a website and all forms of social media. Our website is newactivist.is, and all of our social media is newactivist.is, all one word together, newactivist.is. Would love to engage with you about this conversation or really anything that you would want to talk about. Love our social media community. A big thanks to Propaganda, who scored today's episode. His tour dates, music, merch, etc. can be found at humblebeast.com and his Twitter is Prop Hip Hop. He is also the co-host of the Red Couch Podcast, which you should be listening to. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Liz Dong and my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. <laughs>